The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. In our last study, we began looking at this final part of chapter 12. Um, we looked at verses 37 to 42, which is an explanation of Israel's unbelief. Verse 37 said, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is the end. This is in the last week of Yeshua's life. Many scholars call these first 12 chapters the book of signs because the emphasis on these, in these chapters is on these seven signs that our Lord did that demonstrate His deity. They demonstrate who He is. Now, the Jewish crowd there had been following Him for over three years. They had seen Him heal the lame man. They had seen Him giving sight to the blind. They even saw Him raise the dead of a man who'd been in the tomb for four days. And then after that, they heard him pray, and as he prays to God, God thunders back out of heaven in answer to his prayer, and then this verse says they still did not believe in him. They still didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? What is wrong with these people? They saw all the things they saw and still wouldn't believe. Well, we saw in this text that the Jewish unbelief is a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 39 says, Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah had said. Why couldn't they believe? They couldn't believe because it had not been revealed to them. He had not given them an understanding heart. The unbelief of Israel was God's plan. He willed to make their unbelief the means by which He would provide salvation for the world. So Lazarus says, they still did not believe in Him. In verse 37. And then he says in verse 39, they could not believe in him. Then in verse 42, he says this, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Nevertheless, is from two Greek words, hamos and mindi, which function as a strong adversative. The Lexham English Bible translates this, yet despite that, Despite all the unbelief, despite the hardness of heart, the majority of the Jews did not believe in Him. Because they could not believe in Him. They were blinded. Yet despite all that, in contrast to all that, nevertheless, many believed in Him. So he's contrasting these authorities who believe with those who do not believe. Now, despite this contrast and the fact that the inspired Word of God says they believed, we talked about this last week, many scholars, many commentators say they did not believe. What is it that causes people to think that these authorities did not believe when the text says that they did? What causes them to doubt the belief of these people? It's their works. Look at the next verse. The rest of the verse says, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. 
so they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. So because these new believers feared the Pharisees and didn't want to be de-synagogued, people will say, well, they really didn't believe even though the text says they did believe. Now let me say this again. How can, nevertheless, many believed in Him mean the same thing as they did not believe in Him or they could not believe in Him? How can Lazarus say that some believed and some did not, but people obviously say what he really means is no one believed? I mean, he makes a distinction. They didn't believe. They couldn't believe. Some did. But they say that some did really didn't. So no one did. You know, it's just crazy. This is eisegesis. Okay, eisegesis is implying on the text a meaning that's not there. Why do they do that? That's their theology. They have a theology that says if you are a Christian, you will live a certain way. And every Christian has their own certain way that you're supposed to live. Certain things you do, certain things you don't do. All right? The Bible says they believe, but because they didn't perform the way certain Christians think they should, then they just write them off. Now, last week I said, you don't get to heaven by what you do or don't do. And you should all say amen because of that, okay? You go to heaven because you believe, because you trust in Yeshua. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the theme of the New Testament. But every time I talk about the fact that good works are not necessary for salvation, every time I say a person is not saved by what they do, but by what they believe, they're saved by faith alone, the question always comes up. And Mike Sullivan asked it last week, And I appreciate that, Mike, because, like I said, it always does come up. People always say, what about James? James 2 always comes up. Because, notice what James says. If you're paying attention, this question should arise. James 2.14, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can that faith save him? See, a literal Greek rendering would be more like this. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Faith cannot save him, can it? This translation is based on the original Greek and is crucial to a correct interpretation. The form of the question that James asked in the last part of the verse is one which expects a negative response. The expected answer from James' point of view would be, no, faith cannot save him. Now, this verse has been appealed to over the centuries to support the idea that works are necessary for eternal life. This could very well be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. It's surrounded by a lot of confusion and multiple interpretations. This verse in James called Martin Luther to call the book of James an epistle of straw. You can understand Luther's whole thing is salvation by faith alone, and then he reads James, he's like, this this thing. He didn't want it to be in the canon. He didn't think it should have been in the canon. Because James seems to be contradicting the biblical teaching of salvation by faith alone. He seems to be contradicting the Reformation principles, sola fide, faith alone. Look at what James says. 
He says, can that faith save them? And basically, like I said, it's negative. Faith can't save them, can it? And then in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James says, listen, without a doubt, works are necessary for salvation. That's clearly what James says. Are you confused? Okay, good. Got to get you lost for it and get you found, all right? (laughs) Now, if you hold to verbal inspiration of Scripture, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then you must admit that something is wrong here, okay? Either Scripture contradicts itself, or we're interpreting something is wrong. Which one of those are you more comfortable with? Yeah, let's, let's go with the second one, okay? We're all in favor of that, all right? We don't, we don't do anything by majority around here, but hopefully you see that, okay? We're interpreting something wrong, all right? The first principle of hermeneutics is the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. It doesn't contradict itself. So we've got to say something is wrong, we're doing something wrong here. James is not discussing a doctrine of salvation which is based only on faith. He's not. There's just no way around that. James insists that works are necessary for salvation. And many interpreters have seen James as standing in opposition to the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone. I'm sure you can understand that. Look at what Paul writes. And are justified by His grace as a gift. I love this here, okay? Gift is from the Greek word dorion. Dorion means for nothing, gratuitously, gift-wise. And then you got grace, which means unmerited favor. So in the phrase here, by His grace as a gift, He is redoubling the idea of freeness, of a gift. Justification is free. That's His emphasis here. Through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. That's his emphasis. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. See the emphasis on faith? Then what becomes of our boasting? Now do you understand Paul's question there? If salvation is free, if it is grace, if you don't do anything, what do you get to boast about? Nothing. It takes boasting away because it is a gift. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul says a man is justified Apart from works, he's justified solely by faith. Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say, and to the one who does not work, but believes. No work, but faith. 
believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I mean, Paul makes this clear. Works are not involved in salvation. Does that sound like it contradicts James 2.14? Sure does. Sure does. It was interesting. A couple of years ago, we had a woman come to the church and said her husband you know, was a child of missionaries and raised in the church, and he recently walked away from the church, and he didn't want anything to do with it. And I said, why? You know? And she goes, because he just has been really studying the Bible. Well, that's a good reason to leave the church. No, I mean it is because you find out that what the church is doing and what the Bible says are too. But here was his, this exactly was his problem. He saw this, you know, Paul saying it's by faith, James saying you got to work, and he saw the conflict, and he, you know, he went to his pastor about it, and his pastor said, well, you probably shouldn't come back here. And so he, he, I got together and we talked to him. I'm like, good, this is awesome. You're understanding the scripture. There's a problem here. You know, so we got to talk and I got to share some things with him. But James, listen, James is saying, faith alone cannot save. But Paul says, faith alone does save. Paul says, it's all of faith. Works play no part. Look what Paul says in Romans 11.6. If it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. You understand that? If you work for something and they pay you, is that a gift? It's a debt. They owe you. You did some labor. But grace is no longer. You didn't do. I'm giving you this as an act of grace. Now, if your boss gives you a check and said, this is grace, he's meaning you don't do anything around here, okay? <laughs> That's what he means. If you get a check and they say it's grace, you're not earning your keep, all right? Because grace and work, sir, don't work together. Grace is a gift. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you work for it, it's not grace anymore. Paul's saying that grace and works are mutually exclusive. If salvation is by grace, then works play no part. Can you understand why people have a problem reconciling Paul and James? See, people who don't really read the Bible don't get this, okay? But if you're reading your Bible and you're paying attention, you're like, wow, you're scratching your head saying something's wrong here. I mean, James says faith alone can't save. Paul says faith alone saves. Martin Luther, using Romans, began the Reformation on the principle sola fide, faith alone. No wonder he called James a strawy epistle. James clearly states that works are necessary for salvation, and Luther's going, this, this can't work out. Now, many expositors have tried to harmonize James and Paul, but all harmonizations with the doctrine of sola fide are awkward and forced. Guthrie wrote this. Now, hopefully, y'all have become critical thinkers. Okay, not critical people, but critical thinkers. When you think, when you read something, you're thinking, oh, what are they saying here? What do they mean by that? Look what Guthrie writes. It may well be that James is correcting a misunderstanding of Paul or vice versa. What's he saying there? One of these guys is wrong. <laughs> That's what he's saying. They're correct. One of these guys is correcting the other, so one of them is wrong. He says, but... It cannot be said that James and Paul are contradicting each other. What? What does that even mean? One's correcting the other, but they're not contradicting the other. What is the difference? See, this is how they deal with this text. It's just nonsense, you know? <laughs> they say stuff and you're like, whoa, what did he even say there? All right? He is saying one of these guys is wrong. And i got to ask, what about inspiration? How can an inspired writer, was one of them not inspired? 
The Bible, all of it's God's inspired word. Albert Barnes, commenting on this text in James 2.14, writes this. He doubtless had in his eye those who abuse the doctrine of justification by faith by holding that good works are unnecessary to salvation. <laughs> See, that's abusing the doctrine. That, that is not abusing it at all, all right? Provided they maintain orthodox belief. As this abuse probably existed in the time of the apostles, and as the Holy Ghost saw that there would be a danger in the latter times, the great and glorious doctrine of justification by faith would be thus abused. It was important that the error should be rebuked and that the doctrine should be distinctly laid down that good works are necessary for salvation. This is so frustrating to me, okay? Because here's my question. Is were, are works part of salvation? You know, and I remember when I was a youth pastor, t- talking to kids. Are works, yes, they say, yeah, yeah, you got to do. And I said, what do you got to do? Let's find out. What do we have to do to be saved? One kid said, you got to read your Bible. And I'm like, okay, how much do you have to read your Bible? And then it got quiet. Wait a minute. If reading your Bible is a condition of salvation, how much do I have to read? I mean, I don't want to overdo it. I'm not an overachiever, right? But I don't want to underachieve. I make, I mean, I want to. So that's what we have to ask. If works are important, how much works? What works? Where's the answer to this? You can give me a verse on this, what I have to do and how much I have to do, how long I have to do it. Those are important questions. If you're going to add works to salvation, you better be specific. Because I want to know. I want to know how to be saved. And Barnes says, you've got to lay it down. Good works are necessary. Which one? Give me a list. These guys will start stumbling over themselves when you press it. Because they don't have an answer. All right? Barnes goes on. The apostles, therefore, in the question before us, implicitly asserts that faith would not profit at all unless accompanied with a holy life. And this doctrine proceeds to illustrate in the following verses. All right. So he's saying, according to Mr. Barnes, faith would not profit at all unless accompanied by a holy life. Most of the church would go along with this. But like I said, you start pressing it and saying, what works? How much of these works do I have to do? What exactly do you mean by holy life? And people would be all confused. John Piper writes this, works of any kind are not acceptable in the moment of initial justification. That's interesting. But, When James affirms justification by works, he means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian to confirm and prove the reality of the faith which justifies. So, Piper says, no, in the initial act, you don't really need it. But in the ongoing life of a Christian, they prove the reality of faith. My question is, prove to who? God? God looks down... Oh, you're working. Oh, I wondered if you were saved or not. Now I know because I see what you're doing. What, who's it proven to? And again, what works do I need to prove? I mean, how, how do I prove this? So if you don't have works, then you don't have a faith that justifies, so you're really not saved. John Stone writes this, and I, I love this quote, all right? That faith can save a man and that nothing else can is written throughout the Scriptures as with a pencil of light. Amen. I agree. And then then someone would say, well, what about James? (laughs) The Scriptures clearly teach, apart from James, 
that salvation is by faith alone. Now, because of the conflict between James and Paul, a desperate effort has been made to avoid the impact of James. All right? So the people are seeing this. Or there's a problem. Paul's saying this. James saying this. How do we solve this? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's add some words to the text of Scripture. All right? James 2.14. Look at the NIV. The NIV says, Can such faith save them? The New American Standard and the ESV says, Can that faith save them? Indicating there's a kind of faith that does not save. So now you've got to ask, do I have the right kind of faith? All right? Now, translating it this way is an unjust exaggeration of what's called the article of previous reference. In the Greek, and it has nothing to commend it here, the article of previous reference says that since there is a definite article with faith, it's ten piston, the faith, we can substitute words such as that faith or such faith. With abstract nouns like faith or love, the article is perfectly normal when the noun is used as a subject. So the construction of James 2.14, here's the problem, is identical to James 1.4. And let steadfast have its full effect. But I don't see anybody translating this, let that steadfastness, let such steadfastness have its perfect work. The same construction is used in 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient. Nobody translates it such love or that love. See, in James 2, the definite article occurs with faith in verses 17, 18, 20, 22, 26, and the attempt to single out 2.14 for specialized treatment carries its own refutation. You can't just, well, this verse here, we're going to make it special. Why do they try to change what, James, try, change what James is saying here? They're trying to make James say that there's a certain kind of faith that doesn't save you. But James' point is clear, faith alone cannot save. That's his, that's his whole emphasis. If it's alone, he can't save. Now, did James really disagree with Paul on salvation being by grace through faith alone? Think he disagreed with him? Notice uh, James 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All right? Now, the good gifts of God are obviously salvation, right? He goes on to say, of his own will be God us with the word of truth. So, good gifts come from God, and salvation is one of those good gifts. By a sovereign act of his will, God gives us grace and faith to believe his word. This verse, I taught through James, I don't even know how long ago. You know, 25 years ago, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> okay, Gary's good at time. 25 years ago, I'm teaching through the book of James, I'm excited. This is a problem with verse by verse. When you teach verse by verse, you come to verses that mess you up, okay? Because they, they, these verses don't agree with your theology, all right? So instead of rewriting the Bible, the best thing to do is change your theology. So I get to verse 18. I'm Arminian in my theology, okay? I can lose my salvation, and uh, I believe it's up to my, me and my will, and I, and I read, of his own will be God us with the word of truth. And my first question was, of his own will? What about my will? How come, it, how come it says of his own will? I mean, and I began to study, and that week was horrible for me because God took, the, took an Arminian and turned him into a Calvinist, okay, in that week's time, all right? And listen, and I hated Calvinists. I did. They were messed up, okay? And I became what I hated, all right? Because the Scripture did that to me, you know? But that's the thing. I, you, when you look at the Scriptures, uh, they'll tend to do that. 
So the bottom line here, though, people, James sees the new birth as a sovereign act of God. It doesn't involve human works. So James has, James is straight on that. James and Paul were in fundamental harmony about eternal, how eternal life is received. For both of them, it's a gift of God, graciously and sovereignly bestowed. Well, what does James mean then in 2.14? Can that faith save them? Well, we need to apply a very basic rule of hermeneutics here. One of the rules of hermeneutics is determine carefully the meaning of words. The Greek verb here, sozo, for save, has a wide range of possible meanings. See, our problem is we read the word saved, we only have one definition. Eternal life, right? You remember in Matthew 14, Peter gets out in the water, and he's walking on the water, and all of a sudden he starts to sink? What's he say? Lord, save me! I need eternal life, Lord, right at this moment. How is that going to help him from the waves he's about to drown? When he says, Lord, sudzo, save me, he's talking about deliver me from this water, a watery grave. Lord, you've got to help me out. See, sodzo has a wide range of possible meanings. It can mean physical healing. It's used that way in the Scripture. It can mean rescue from danger. That's what Peter wanted. It can mean spiritual deliverance of various kinds, and it can mean deliverance from the judgment of God, and that's how we think of it. That's all we think of it. People ask, are you saved? I would say, saved from what? what how do you use that word? What do you, and they look like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> Am I delivered from something? Is, are you talking about physical sal- salvation, or are you talking about spiritual salvation? But we have to determine the meaning of a word from its context. Now, to help us understand how James uses it, let's look at how he closes his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you, who's he writing to? Who do you think he's calling brothers? This is, a, this is controversial. People say, he's talking to other Jews. He's writing to believers. Yes, they are Jewish believers, but he's writing to believers. My brothers, fellow Christians, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, can Christians do that? Uh, yeah, they sure can. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here the meaning of the verb sozo is clear. It refers to preservation of physical life from death. The Greek expression here is sozentensuke. It's a standard and normal way of saying to save the life. Suke means life. It's translated life and soul. And so the translator translates it how they feel, you know, they kind of interpret for you and they translate it. But it's just life. He will save his life from death. There's no text in the Greek Bible where it can be shown Sozen Tensuke has the meaning of save the life from eternal death. It's just saving your life. And James is saying if your brother wanders off into sin, if you do all you can to bring him back. And by bringing him back, you're going to save his life from death. How is that? Well, the theme of the book of James is found in 121. Therefore, put away evil, all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So do away with sin. Get sin out of your life and watch and receive with meekness the implanted word. Okay, the word has been implanted. Receive it 
which is able to save your life. Save your souls here again is sozentensuke in the Greek. The normal way of saying save your life. James is writing to Christians. He's telling them they can save their lives. They're already justified. But they can save their physical lives from damage that sin brings if you will walk in holiness. He's already warned them of the death-dealing consequence of sin in verses 13 through 15. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He is talking about, he's writing to believers. And in verse 21, he suggests that the antidote to the kind of consequences spoken of in verse 15 is the life saving capacity of God's Word. This theme is repeated all through the Proverbs. So remember, James is a Jewish epistle. He's got this whole Jewish concept in mind. We see this, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. But who pursues, he who pursues evil will die. In other words, there, if you live the way you're supposed to live, there's benefits to that. Alright? In 1 21 through 25 of James, he says that his readers will be saved from the destruction that sin brings if they are doers rather than hearers of the word. And then in 2 14 through 26, he is saying they will be saved in the same sense, not by what they believe, but by what they do about what they believe. He's, James' theme is how to save your life from the damage of sin. He's writing to Christians. And he's telling them, this is how you preserve your life. You want to have a blessed life? You want to have a a contentment and a peaceful life? Then you stay away from sin. You walk in holiness. The reason that James 2.14 seems to be contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith alone is because we have missed James' subject. James is not talking about eternal life and how to obtain it. That's not his theme. James is writing about preserving temporal life and the damage that sin brings to the life of a believer. Do any of you know any believers that got involved in sin and just watched it destroy their total life? You've seen it happen? Sin is destructive. We have to understand that. All right? Very destructive. Whereas when you walk in righteousness, I'm not talking health wealth, I'm not saying you're going to be healthy and wealthy. But I don't care what happens to your life, there's a peace and a contentment that comes from walking with the Lord. Look at James 2, 12 through 14. This is leading up to the verse 14, all right? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. See, one thing about a Christian is they should be merciful people. Because they have received mercy, so they should be showing mercy. Because they know more about mercy than anybody. And he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Then he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? See, James is asking, does the fact that you're a believer save you from the temporal judgment of God if you live in sin? No. God chastens his children. And the question, remember, demands a negative answer. No, that faith won't save you. 
That's not going to preserve your life from the judgment, the damage that sin brings to a life. The idea of temporal judgment in the life of a believer, I think is taught in the parable of Matthew 18. It's a parable of forgiveness. And forgiveness, people, is one of the bottom line, should be one of the bottom line Christian attributes, okay? You, you, we have been forgiven. That's of anything. We're forgiven. We should be forgiving. And we always are, right? No, not, not even close sometimes. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. All right, in this parable, the master is God. The wicked servant is a believer because he's been forgiven all his debt. He's debt free now. Verse 33, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Same as in, I think they, they supposed, they're supposed to have mercy because they've been shown mercy. All right? Mercy is a work that a believer should be doing. Matthew 18, 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until she pay all his debt. This is talking about the believer. This is the slave that the Lord forgave and he wouldn't forgive. So the Lord turns him over to the jailers. And the, the text literally talks about being tortured. And, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, this, this is the guy who's been forgiven the debt, but he won't forgive another, so he's, he's been turned over by God to be judged. Verse 34 is a picture of temporal judgment because of sin. Notice verse 35. And also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Lord is stressing, believers, you, you need to be forgiving people. You are representatives of me on the earth, and I forgave you, I'm a forgiving God, you ought to be doing that. Now let me ask you, if we are saved by grace apart from works, does it matter how we live? Absolutely it matters how we live. That's what James is talking about. God brings temporal judgment on those believers who do not live out the principles of their faith. When I was young, I was in the military, I knew beyond a shadow of doubt God had called me to preach. I knew it from the time I got saved. I didn't understand it, but I knew it. I knew that's what I was going to do. And in the military, I got involved in weightlifting and was very ate up with myself and wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And one day I woke up paralyzed from the neck down. And I'm laying in the hospital and I'm thinking, okay, God, you got my attention. <laughs> I knew what was going on. All right. Because when I went in the hospital, I was in intensive care for three weeks. I went in and in the three weeks I lost 30 pounds. Muscle atrophy because all my nerves shut down. They weren't feeding my, and I just, and so I got the, I got the message, and I said, all right, Lord, I'll do what you need me to do, you know, but I just, there is a way, God, God knows exactly how to get our attention. He knows exactly how to discipline, and he does it out of love, but if you think as a believer that you can live in sin and get away with it, sin has built-in consequences. It makes people miserable. It destroys your life. If your faith doesn't work, by that, if you don't live out the principles of the teaching of Christ, you're going to suffer temporal judgment because of it. Now, don't get to the point where, 
I did this wrong thing, and you're just waiting for the sky to fall. You know, God is not like that, okay? But when you continue on in sin, God has a way to dealing with that sin because you're His child. He knows how to deal with His children. Now, the solution to the problem in James 2.14 is very simple. Understand the correct subject. All right, no text can be read correctly when the writer's real subject is not perceived. And James' subject is deliverance from temporal judgment. James' subject is physical preservation, not eternal redemption. He has made it perfectly clear that eternal life is a gift of God's sovereign choice. Now, you know, you talk about this and people say, well, are you trying to say that for centuries the church got this wrong? Uh, yeah, the church has got a lot of things wrong for centuries. Have you ever heard of the Reformation? That was about salvation because the church had it wrong on salvation, so they needed a reformation. Maybe you would discourage Luther or Calvin saying, yeah, they don't, don't rock the boat. Emperor Charles V said of Luther at the Diet of Worms, a single friar who goes counter to all Christianity for a thousand years must be wrong. The greatest conviction of the reformation was the supremacy of an appeal to Scripture over to the tradition of the church. We need to stand in the fundamental principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the Scripture alone. If it's in the Scripture, that's what we have to do. And that means using the principles of hermeneutics, the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. Paul and James are not battling each other. James is the only book you're going to find this idea of, you know, a dead faith in. And so you have to understand, what's James talking about? Is he contradicting Paul? No, he can't be. So the way I see it, we have two options, okay? We either see James opposing Paul and denying sola fide. Anybody like that option? I'll give you another one. We see his subject as different. But he says save. I know, but what does he mean? We have to take words and understand them. You know, how is he using that word save? What does he mean? As I said, I've already said, every time I talk to somebody about the fact that salvation is by grace alone, you know, that is Christianity 101. No, it's even, it's Christianity kindergarten, okay? Salvation is by grace alone. But I'll tell you what, you bring that up and people are like, oh yeah, but, oh, I don't know, but yes, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, they add something. It just bugs people that God just reaches out and saves people. I mean, people don't like grace. I'm serious, they don't like it. People always say, what about James? It's not too strong to say a misreading of James 2.14-26 is one of the most tragic interpretive blunders in the history of the church. It is a misreading of this text that has caused believers to encourage people to find their assurance in their works. That is frightening. Because people say, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I do this, and I do that, and I do... Guess what? That's the wrong answer. You're going to go to bed a lot of nights and in terror because well, I didn't do so well today. Not sure I'm even saved today. Because to so many people, if you don't live a holy life, and again, this is, <laughs> a holy life is defined by them. They have certain things that make you holy. Some of them, ridiculous, okay? Like I said, playing cards. There's certain groups of Christians that would say, you cannot be a Christian and play cards. Now, you tell me what Bible verse they use. 
okay? Because you've got to stretch the Bible when you pull off stuff like that, all right? But, I mean, it just goes, that's the thing. It, it, it's undefinable. You've got to live a holy life. If you don't, you're not saved. If good works are really a condition or an essential fruit of salvation, then I can really never be assured of my salvation. Because what if I quit working? An insistence on the necessity of works undermines assurance and postpones it logically until death. Because when an end can't be achieved apart from certain things being done, those things logically become conditions of the end in view. And to add works to faith is to make works essential to salvation. Is your assurance based on your works or is it based on the grace of God? See, I just think if if you are trusting in your works, you are really a proud person. Because you're saying, look how good I am. And the Bible says God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And I don't want to be resisted by God. You know, I want the humility. And that's what grace is about. He He has done it all. Please notice what we've already studied, what Lazarus says about salvation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And people would say, well, Lazarus, you forgot to put and works in there. I mean, why say things as blatant as this? This could confuse people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Again, He did it. Now, let me ask you, what do the children of Israel have to do to be healed from the snake bite? What else do they have to do? Besides look. Look! That's all they had to do! Look! A look in faith that healed you. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, this is a all you have to do is look to Christ for the redemption. No restitution. No nothing. Just look and live. That's true of salvation. You look to Christ for your redemption. He goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whosoever believes in him is not condemned. Again, he just says, you got to believe. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only name of the Son of God. Then in, verse five, in chapter 5, verse 24, it's truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Why does he keep doing that? It's like he's trying to tell us something. But he forgets to add about the works. Look at chapter 6, 28. Then he said to him, what must I do to be doing the works of God? Yeshua answered, this is the work of God. You said, oh, finally, we got to some works we got to do. What does he tell us we have to do? This is the work that you believe in him who is sent. Now, the work of God here is either that work which God desires from mankind or that which God accomplishes in a person. In this gospel, it's most likely both. That's just how he does it. And he uses the singular here. This is the work, the singular work of God, and the work of God is you trusting Christ. That's God's work. The significance of the modifying phrase of God indicates that the work of faith is not our effort, it's the gift of God enabling us to believe. John 11, Yeshua said, To her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me, again, he just talks about faith. There's such a stress in this book on faith, and he comes in and he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you may have life in his name. This is why Lazarus wrote the gospel, that you may believe, and through faith you have eternal life. The scriptures are clear, eternal life is free to those who believe, and on the authority of Yeshua, the believer can know he has eternal life the moment he trusts God for it. Now, the problem today in the church is they have adopted the theory of individual psychology taught by Dr. Alfred Adler, who said, trust only in movement. He says, we are not what we say, we are what we do. Is that approach scriptural? Well, someone says, yeah, we gotta, we got to be fruit inspectors. we got to check everybody's fruit out and, and decide. So we get to be judged. We'll decide who's a Christian and not a Christian because they do or don't do certain things, right? So, okay, we see David, and David has, uh, as a king, has taken this woman who's not his wife. He has had sex with her. She gets pregnant, so he kills her husband. David a Christian or not a Christian? Oh, maybe at that time he's not, but later he... You, you know what the Bible calls David? Man after God's own heart. Why? I don't know for sure, but my opinion on this is he's called a man after God's own heart because David was extremely forgiving. He was a very forgiving person. We see that through the Scriptures. I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know why God called him that, but that's, that's what it says, all right? So is it biblical to judge a person? Well, they say, well, yeah, you're supposed to be fruit inspectors. Let's look at the text, Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and it's easy and leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. You know what the narrow gate is? It's faith. The narrow gate is faith in Christ. That's narrow. You can't believe this. You can't do this. You, can't. you just have to trust Christ. That's narrow. There's a lot of broad roads out there telling you get to heaven a lot of other ways, but that's a narrow gate. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life, and those that find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. All right, sheep's clothing is not a wolf with the sheepskin over his head. You seen the cartoon? Sheep's clothing is the garment of a prophet. A, a prophet wore a wool garment. All right, that sheep's clothing, a prophet wears that. So he's a prophet, but he's a false prophet. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. See, there you go. Right? We'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. All right? So you recognize them by their fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. See, people will appeal to these scriptures, say, see, we're supposed to judge people. Uh, this passage is teaching we can tell a believer by their fruits. Well, are their fruits what they do? Is that the context here? No, look at chapter 12, same subject. Either make the tree good or its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good? When you're evil. Right of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, fruit is not what they do. Fruit is what they say. If you want to know a false prophet, you tell a false prophet by what he teaches. 
Listen to John Eliezer, a.k.a. Lazarus, in 1 John 4. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God, and the Spirit that confesses that Yeshua Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's he saying? Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. You spot a false prophet by what he says. Out of his heart his mouth speaks. They may live very moral, righteous on the outward lives, but inside they're false prophets. They're teaching wrong doctrine. Now, what do you do if someone says to you they're a Christian and they're living immorally? You just believe the testimony of everybody that says they're a Christian? I wouldn't. Because first of all, in this country, most people think they're Christians because they live here. It's a Christian country. Makes you a Christian person, right? If someone's living immorally, but they say they're a Christian, first of all, I would question them on the gospel. What do they believe? You know, how, how do you know you're a Christian? If you die right now and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell them? And they'll list off their works, and I'll say, well, let's go over the gospel. But if they understand the gospel and they're living in sin, then I think it's our responsibility to try to turn a brother from the error of his way, as James says, and save his soul from death. Warn him of the consequences of sin. How does a person know if he really believes the gospel? See, one result of the misreading of James 2 has been to render the concept of saving faith so mystifying that you can't even know if you believe or not. I mean, the additions of the NIV of such faith and New American and ESV of that faith gives people the idea that they may have the wrong kind of faith. I may not just be believing right. Let me try to define this for you, make it simple. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. If you were to ask me, where's my money? And I tell you, the check is in the mail. Do you have a way to verify that? So it's faith. Either you believe what I say. You understand. I understand what a check is. I understand what the mail is. I understand what you did. You understand it, but do you believe it? Well, that's going to be dependent on what you think of my character. I mean, if you don't trust me, you're going to say, yeah, right, the check's in the mail. I heard that story before. But if you think I have character, then you, if I say check's in the mail, you say, I believe that. That's it. I'm trusting what you said. And see, no matter what the subject, whether it be God or botany, the psychology or linguistics of belief is identical in all cases. Believing that 2 plus 2 is 4 is mathematics. Believing that asparagus belongs to the lily family is botany. Botany is not mathematics, but the psychology or linguistics of believing is identical. Christ's promises of salvation are vastly different from the propositions of botany. But believing is always thinking a proposition is true. See, we have so mystified faith and mystified the gospel, nobody even knows what it means. And we got all these little Christian buzz phrases and things that we say, and you're like, yeah, you go along, you don't even understand what people are saying. It's understanding and assent to the proposition of the gospel. So let me ask you this. Is faith purely an intellectual exercise? No, it is spiritual. It is spiritual. Listen, people, you cannot believe unless the Father draws you to Christ. 
unless you've been called, unless you're elect. It's not just an intellectual thing. It is a spiritual thing, but it is intellectual. How do you know a person is a Christian? Because they understand and assent to the proposition of the gospel. I believe that. And the only way they can do that is if God has given them life to be able to do it. Let me ask you another question. Could someone believe with their head, but not with their heart? Yeah. See? <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad. Because I went into a restroom once, and on the toilet there was a track. You know, people love to leave tracks in restrooms. You know, I guess more people are saved in bathrooms than any place in, you know, in America. But the track said, missing heaven by 18 inches. And I thought, dang, so close. And what they were saying is, well, they believed with their head, but not their heart. I don't know if it's really 18 inches, but, you know, you get the thing. Here's the thing. That is nonsense biblically. Nonsense. Because in the Bible, there's no distinction. In the Bible, you think with your what? Heart. You think with your heart. The thinking process with heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. They didn't understand, you know, the things of the brain and this. They didn't understand all that stuff. You thought with your heart. So but people do all this stuff to, you know, make it so difficult. I don't know if I really believe the right way. And when I hear people talking about this or teaching this, I like to question them. Well, I might be missing having by 18 inches. How do I know? You know, and, and see what kind of answer you get out of them. Because how do you deal with that? Well, I believe, but I don't know if I really believe. Is it the right belief? You know, the difference between various beliefs lies in the object or the propositions believed, not the nature of belief. Faith must begin with knowledge. You can't believe what you don't understand. Although some people try today, all right? You got to understand it before you can believe it. In other words, I understand the teaching of evolution. I don't believe it. I don't assent to it. I have no faith in it. Belief is the act of assenting to something understood. So no, you can't believe with your head without your heart. That's ridiculous. There's no difference to that, all right? But understanding alone is not belief. I understand dispensational theology. Taught it. I don't believe it. See, they're not different faiths. They're different objects of faith. And non-saving faith would be a faith that believes the wrong propositions. Now, there's exceptions, but I believe for the most part the Catholic faith is a non-saving faith. Because they count on the efficacy of personal works. I've got the, they believe that Christ's death on the cross, He died for our sins. But they believe what He did is not enough. You have to add to that. So it's Christ plus works that get you into heaven. And Christ plus works equals nothing. The Mormon faith is a non-saving faith because they deny the deity of the Lord Christ. And they count on the efficacy of works. Non-saving faith is believing the wrong things. Belief in the truth. Nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. Saving faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. It is believing that Christ died to pay the sin debt of all who put their trust in Him, only in Him, completely in Him. And if I've trusted my Savior, I can know that I've trusted my Savior just as surely as I know whether there's a China or not. I've never been there, but I believe there's a China. Okay? 
And you can know when you believe. That's the thing. If you understand what belief is, you can know when you believe, if you believe it. It's not mystical. But again, it is spiritual and it is supernatural. It only happens as a work of God. But the results, listen, people will say, well, the way you know you're saved is you work. No, the way you know you're saved is you believe. If you believe, it's because God gave you life. Because only when you have life can you believe. So what does James mean by dead faith? Faith, apart from works, is dead. Well, first of all, James 2, 14-26 is the only New Testament passage that speaks of dead faith. The Bible speaks of little faith, weak faith, growing faith. James is the only one that speaks of dead faith. And please notice that the distinction in James is between dead faith and living faith, not false faith and true faith. I see that designation all the time. Well, their faith wasn't real. What do you mean? What did they believe in? Was what they believe in a false thing? Or faith is faith, as we said. You've got to understand that, all right? James is clearly teaching that works are necessary for salvation, for physical preservation. He states his argument in verse 14, can that faith save him? And then he illustrates his argument. Now watch James' illustration here of what he's saying. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him those things needed for the body, what good is that? How are you helping that brother out? You're not giving him what his body needs. And see, here's what I want you to get. The fact that the preserving of life is at the heart of this illustration. Can the fact that a man holds correct beliefs and is orthodox save from the deadly consequences of sin? Of course not. That's like giving your best wishes to a destitute brother or sister when what they really need is food and clothing. It is utterly fruitless. Neither will your faith do your physical well-being any good if you live in sin. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, what are the works? What's he mean by works here? What is James talking about? In the prior verses, the failure was to help the needy, which is love. And I think if we examine the context of chapter 2, we see that the works that James is talking about here is love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If your faith doesn't produce love, it's dead, and it's in danger of temporal judgment. See, the moral dynamic of faith is love. Faith is invisible. You understand that? People say, I believe. Well, I can't see that you believe. I can't. I can't. I don't understand. I just have to take your word for it. A person's possession of faith is dependent upon his verbal testimony alone. Now, how can you tell a person has faith? Well, someone would say, you ask that to a normal person, they say, well, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they live a very moral lifestyle, they witness to others, uh, they give money to the church, they study their Bible, they're a sacrificial giving person. Is that how we spot faith? I just described the Mormon to you. All right, They don't believe in the deity of Christ or in salvation by grace, and they're under the wrath of God because of their unbelief. But they do all the right things. A Mormon missionary would put a Christian to shame as far as living a separated life. Faith is static. I can't see your faith. But love is always active. Love is a verb. 
It does something. And without it, faith will atrophy and die. Verse 17 says that if faith is by itself, if there's no love, it'll die. Believers, faith and works are connected. It is by works that faith is made mature. Your faith grows, it matures as you're living out the Christian life. As we act on what we believe, as we live out our Christianity, our faith will grow. But if we fail to work, if we fail to love, our faith will die. And a dead faith is an unproductive faith. And it will come under the judgment of God. So we are called to keep our faith alive. And that's what James is trying to encourage his brothers. Keep your faith alive. Live out your love. Demonstrate this. Be merciful people. Be forgiving people. Love others. People, we have to get the idea of James' subject correctly. Okay? The subject of James... Preservation of the physical life, it's not eternal redemption. And if you get it wrong, you're going to really have some problems. Because I believe that faith is an intellectual exercise, it's supernatural, but we use our intellect, we believe certain things. And when people start telling us we have to do this and this, then you have to ask, where in the Scripture do you have to do that? And how much you have? You get to ask all these questions and you find out it's very nebulous. And it shouldn't be nebulous because the Gospel's not. Now next week, we're going to finish John 12 and we're going to look at the rest of these verses and talk about them not confessing Christ. We're going to talk about the reason these people say they're not believers because they failed to confess because they had a fear of the Pharisees. They didn't want to be de-synagogued so they kept their mouths shut. And many Christians say they can't be saved if they don't confess them. So we're going to look at those verses and finish chapter 12, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, this is such an important topic to me. The gospel, Lord, is is just the heart of everything we do, Father. If we get this wrong, it doesn't matter what else we're writing. And I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you'd... Every one of these people hearing my voice would be Bereans and would not take my word for this, but would search this out and will compare Scripture with Scripture to see if these things are so. Make us Bereans, Lord. Give us a heart hungry to know and live the truth. Amen.